0: Episode 9. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, The Weavers and Un-American Activities. On the 29th of December 1947, Henry Wallace burnt his bridges with the Democratic Party and accepted an invitation from the leftist alliance that constituted a progressive party to run as its presidential candidate the following fall. Eleanor Roosevelt was damning in her condemnation. It was incumbent on Liberals to win over one of the two main parties, not leave themselves open to communist manipulation. Henceforth, the former First Lady's column took every opportunity to attack Wallace as a naive dupe. In February 1948, she was appalled by his explanation of the communist coup in Prague. This was a regrettable but necessary means of thwarting American plans to engineer a right-wing coup. Worse was to come that May when Wallace delivered a speech in the form of an open letter to Stalin. Most of Wallace's proposals were by no means outrageous, but seemed so in the fevered atmosphere of the time. What really hurt him was the serious but enthusiastic response from the Kremlin less than a week later. Furthermore, questions arose about the means by which he communicated with the Soviet leadership, and his readiness to visit Moscow without State Department approval. If Wallace lacked political nous, he was never short of self-confidence, even courage. The same month he wooed Stalin, Wallace lectured the House Committee on Un-American Activities on the Progressive Party's moral entitlement to defy any congressional control on free and unfettered speech. His idealism fueled his naivety. Wallace's most recent biographers suggest he never suspected close surveillance by the FBI on the direct orders of J. Edgar Hoover. That surveillance extended to deep penetration of the Progressive Party. A populist Progressive Party had enjoyed some success in taking on the two dominant parties before and after the First World War. But other than the name, it had nothing in common with the liberal and leftist coalition created to promote a raft of ambitious social policies, an extension of civil liberties and a readiness to recognise Russia's genuine concerns. This latest incarnation of the Progressive Party was a revival of the Popular Front, reinforced by the wartime revelation of just how much state intervention could achieve when executive and legislature shared a common political will. The Progressive Citizens of America, along with the American Labour Party, formed the backbone of a party which only became a reality in late July 1948. A national convention in Philadelphia endorsed a radical, unequivocally anti-Truman manifesto and nominated Henry Wallace as its presidential candidate. With a one-term junior senator from Idaho as his running mate the commendably anti-segregationist Glenn Turner boasted a remarkable CV, which included a spell as a country and western singer. Later, in 1950, the singing cowboy of Capitol Hill left office a pauper, but in later life, his reinvention of the toupee made him a millionaire. Historians continue to debate the degree of control exercised by the Communist Party behind the scenes. Wallace always sought to distance himself from his Communist supporters, and his espousal of people's capitalism demonstrated an ideological gulf. Yet it was clearly in the interest of the Progressive Party's opponents before and after the 1948 election to portray this coalition of the left as no more than a Communist puppet Undoubtedly, the Communist Party of the USA did have a major presence, exercising considerable influence over the party. But was this tantamount to manipulation, as suggested by intimidated or disillusioned ex-party members in later evidence to HUAC, the House Committee on Un-American Activities? The extent to which Communists were or were not in key positions within the new organisation seems scarcely to have bothered Wallace, who focused largely upon the issues leaving organisation to others. Because the principal issue was a need to negotiate, not remonstrate, with the Russians, the candidate was unlikely to clash with those orchestrating the campaign. Recriminations came much later, culminating in Wallace's break with the remnants of the Progressive Party over his support for American involvement under the auspices of the United Nations in the Korean War. In succeeding years, Henry Wallace further distanced himself from the views he'd expressed so forcefully after 1945, most notably his criticism of the Marshall Plan and his over-hasty defence of the communist takeover in Czechoslovakia he and his party made a disastrous strategic error by seeming to parrot Moscow's dismissal of the European recovery programme. This was at a time when bipartisan support for martial aid was overwhelming, with the requisite legislative bills securing near-unanimous support when submitted to Congress in the spring of 1948. People's Songs invested all its resources and political capital in supporting Wallace's campaign but presumably drew the line at signing Glenn C. Turner to People's Artists. Pete Seeger and Alan Lomax saw a victory for Henry Wallace as, in the words of William G. Roy, the best hope to return to the enlightened commitments of the New Deal and a retreat from the chilling politics of the Cold War. Following the July convention, Lomax urged campaign organisers to ensure that every rally included a healthy injection of music, led by the best-known voices on the People's Artists' roster. Seeger followed Wallace around the country, acting as a de facto warm-up act before the candidates spoke, invariably preaching to the converted. Venturing down south, the two men never addressed segregated audiences or stayed in segregated hotels. Meetings in Virginia proved surprisingly peaceful, but the atmosphere proved very different in North Carolina, where the Ku Klux Klan was intent on silencing anyone tolerant of godless communists. Shouted offstage in Hickory, Wallace drew on Christ's advice to his disciples. Shake the dust of that town from your feet and go elsewhere. In Burlington, when faced with a violent counter-demonstration, Seeger was aghast to witness Wallace caught up in a fistfight. Yet before they joined forces for the campaign, Henry Wallace was scarcely aware of Pete Seeger and it's unlikely he had any idea who Woody Guthrie was. Given his deep loathing of the president, Guthrie was enthused and energised by the chance to oust Truman. Like so many enthusiasts for a third party candidate in a tight election, he refused to consider the possibility of a split vote, enabling the Republicans to win. Ironically, Wallace himself saw this scenario as a further reason for standing. Four years of harsh Republican rule would create a wave of popular discontent, such as to guarantee the Democrats' victory in 1952. The presidential campaign brought Guthrie back into the People's Songs orbit after an extended period in which he distanced himself from Seeger and company. In the first half of 1948, he played gigs of his own choosing, usually to local union branches, wrestled with writing a novel, published in 1976 under the title Seeds of Man, and struggled with the demands of domesticity. In the summer and autumn of 1948, he was out on the campaign trail, entertaining supporters with a variety of new or reworked songs in support of Henry Agard Wallace, Man of the People. Most of these songs boasted simplistic, often outrageous lyrics, their impact lying in the use of familiar tunes like the Warbush Cannonball. A common theme was the depiction of Wallace, not Truman, as Roosevelt's heir, Witness the candidate's readiness to talk with Stalin. The more Guthrie and others sang of Wallace the Peacemaker, the more his political enemies portrayed him as a Soviet dupe and the Progressive Party as a Communist front. For a full 18 months leading up to polling day, Truman's speeches made obligatory references to Henry Wallace and his communists. All major announcements on foreign policy now emanated from the White House, not the State Department, with Wallace's approval of the Czech coup and dismissal of the Truman Doctrine providing critics either end of Pennsylvania Avenue with ample opportunity to dismiss his ostensibly naive pleas for peace. At the same time, Wallace's dabbling in mystical and eastern religions gave hostile journalists every opportunity to warn the electorate they risked voting into the highest office, a man who displayed poor judgment and lacked firm Christian beliefs. In private, Guthrie was sceptical of Wallace's credentials as a union man. He had, after all, made his money in angry business. But on stage, the message was very different. Ironically, the price people's songs paid for campaigning so enthusiastically on Wallace's behalf was the deepening distrust of most trade unionists. Other than a handful of unions under communist influence, almost all CIO and AFL affiliates remained loyal to the Democrats. Truman had kept organised labour on side by vetoing, unsuccessfully, the previous year's Taft-Hartley Act, an undisguised attack on the unions. Equally unforgiving was the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Nostalgic New Dealers, such as American Democrats for Action, despite their sympathy for Wallace's views in the first year of peace, soon came to see him as only ever a token member of their party. Throughout the course of 1948, the ADA attacked Wallace and his supporters, remaining silent whenever the Democratic Party machine besmirched his name. Truman's campaign team and its allies in the press and on radio had ample ammunition given the extent to which the Progressive Party's campaign so clearly depended upon communist organisation. Senior Democrats orchestrated a successful campaign strategy of demonising Henry Wallace and neutralising Republican claims that the administration was soft on communism. Wallace stayed out on the campaign trail day after day. The same was true of Thomas Dewey, the Republican candidate, and of the President himself. The young Robert Zimmerman was unlikely to witness Pete Seeger, let alone Woody Guthrie, urging the crowd to sing along in support of the Workers' Champion. But on the 13th of October 1948, he was taken to hear Harry Truman address the staunchly Democrat citizens of Duluth. In Chronicles, he recalled the deep and lasting impression that Truman... A serious and slow-speaking Midwesterner, just like his parents, friends and neighbours, made upon him. Twelve years later, on the 2nd of October 1960, the Kennedy bandwagon rolled into Hibbing, with Dylan's mother among those gathered to greet their men. He gave a heroic speech, my mum said, and brought people a lot of hope. That speech placed a heavy emphasis upon continuity and the legacy of previous democratic administrations. Even without Eleanor Roosevelt beside him on the podium, Kennedy placed his domestic agenda in a direct line back to FDR. Notably, he located his foreign policy in a direct line back to Harry S. Truman. On the 2nd of November 1948, when nearly 49 million Americans voted to choose their president, Truman, against the odds, secured a notable victory. Henry Wallace came fourth behind the Southern segregationist Strom Thurmond. The ostensible third candidate attracted a mere 2.37% of the popular vote, and in consequence, no votes were cast for him in the Electoral College. On the 6th of November 1948, in her daily column, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote, I was sure the American people would express themselves in no uncertain terms on policies which Wallace stood for, and my faith in their common sense proved correct. The 1,157,328 who did vote for Wallace tended to be free-thinking members of an educated middle class, nearly half of whom were registered in New York State, with the remaining 50% largely concentrated along the eastern seaboard and in California. Wallace later claimed that he would have been happy had he secured three million votes, as such a visible expression of dissent would no doubt influence foreign policy making, prioritising compromise over confrontation. If every crisis really is an opportunity, then Alan Lomax and Pete Seeger found solace in the social composition of those who had turned out to support Wallace and on the 2nd of November 1948 had voted for him. If a bankrupt People's Songs had lost the trust of organised labour, leading to its closure in March 1949, then its founders could look to a fresh audience for folk music. Out on Coney Island, Guthrie saw the situation as desperate, but back in the city, his old comrades looked to more savvy ways of maintaining the struggle. In the ensuing months, Alan Lomax, thanks to his sister and campaign activist Bess, identified a younger generation of folk fans. These were well-educated, idealistic third-party supporters who’d attended rallies or hoot nannies and relished the entertainment. People’s songs might not be around to fuel their enthusiasm, but a despondent seeger could capitalize upon this newly established audience base, as soon proved the case with the weavers. The original lineup of the group he founded with Lee Hayes in late 1948 would last six years at which point the weaver's chart-orientated formula of sanitised folk finally fell foul of McCarthyism, to the extent that Decca deleted all their records from its catalogue. Astonishingly, the label had just signed Woody Guthrie, who almost immediately was released from his contract. Despite the group's resurrection on Vanguard and their triumphant reunion concert at Carnegie Hall in December 1955, Pete Seeger was blacklisted throughout the three years of the Weaver's Second Incarnation. He'd been indicted on a charge of contempt earlier in the year after quoting the First Amendment when ordered to give evidence at a House of Un-American Activities Committee meeting. Seeger was still deemed a threat to national security when a teenage Bob Dylan saw him singing almanac songs at a campus concert in Madison, Wisconsin. When Dylan sat down to write Talking John Birch Paranoid Blues, presumably he had in mind the American Legion members picketing Seeger's performance 18 months before. When summoned to Washington in 1955, Pete Seeger displayed remarkable courage in not answering all of the Who Act chairman's questions. Two years later, he was indicted for contempt, but the eventual conviction was in due course reversed, on the ground that the House Committee's authority to pose questions and answer by Seeger was unproven. Similarly courageous, albeit to a lesser degree, was Lee Hayes, who pleaded the Fifth Amendment. The dignity of Hayes and Seeger, and of Earl Robinson, who also defended his right to remain silent, contrasted with other comrades from the heyday of the Almanac Singers. Josh White unconvincingly claimed he was a communist dupe, and Burl Ives saved his skin by naming names. Despite the many times he was mentioned, rarely by friend but often by foe, Woody Guthrie somehow escaped a subpoena. Perhaps word had reached Washington that the notorious communist was already incarcerated in Brooklyn State Hospital. For an inception in late 1948, Woody Guthrie had provided the Weavers with tried and tested material. He made so much money on the back of the group's success that he contemplated his own less clean-cut version. The weavers' wholesome image and their readiness to record with an orchestra constituted an uncomfortable fit with what Guthrie considered real folk music. Ironically, Wallace's communist advisers had been wary of Alan Lomax's performance deviating too far from the musical mainstream. Nevertheless, in his seven-page election inquest, Guthrie insisted that industrial workers would have ditched the Democratic Party had the songs sung at campaign rallies been more rousing and less saccharine. Performers should have eschewed any acknowledgement of popular music, adhered to a radical American folk tradition rooted in class war, and not been afraid to ask, which side are you on? Naturally excluding himself... Guthrie blamed his fellow performers in their songs for failing to touch the heartstrings and consciences of the hard hit masses. Thus, the lesson of Wallace's doomed campaign and the subsequent collapse of People's Songs was not to follow the path Seeger and Lomax planned for the Weavers and to seek short term respectability. Instead, Guthrie promised. To get a good deal out of it from now on, because I'm slowly commencing to think that I've forgotten more about writing progressive songs of social protest than the rest of our entire staff combined. Whether or not Alan Lomax read Guthrie's lengthy charge sheet, to identify him as the person directly responsible for the Wallace campaign's failure, was neither fair nor accurate. With friends like these, it's no wonder that within two years Lomax had left for England followed soon after by a flood of fellow victims, all subject to an unashamedly anti-intellectual political witch hunt. As already suggested, Guthrie's behaviour, especially towards women, was more and more affected by the early stages of Huntingdon's disease, as yet unsuspected. His condition continued to deteriorate throughout the late 40s and into the 50s, but it was after 1951 that... In Will Kaufman's words, a neurological disintegration led to a lengthy spell in hospital and a clear diagnosis. The preceding years had seen Guthrie's political judgment, never subtle or sophisticated but always well-intentioned, become ever more clouded. His almost obsessional loathing of Truman extended to every individual or organisation associated with American foreign policy and national security. Relying heavily on Notebook 64 in the Woody Guthrie archives, Will Kaufman quoted ever more bloodthirsty lyrics and letters, thankfully often unsung and unsent, chronicling Guthrie's descent into defending the indefensible. There's early disaffection with the United Nations and a justified unease over the scale of American military force in Korea tipped over into unreserved praise for Kim Il sung and his regime in North Korea. When a beleaguered Communist Party and veteran fellow travellers, still brave or reckless enough to put their heads above the parapet, opposed or queried the defence of South Korea, Henry Wallace cut any lingering ties with the Progressive Party. His antipathy towards the party contrasted starkly with the spirit of optimism and solidarity on display in Philadelphia only two years before. Addressing delegates, the newly adopted presidential candidate had articulated the disillusion he and other alienated liberals shared when lamenting lost opportunities and a lost leader. Wallace solemnly informed the convention that in Hyde Park they buried our president and in Washington they buried our dreams. The White House had witnessed an exodus of the torchbearers of the New Deal and a consequent subversion of the course Franklin Roosevelt had charted for the nation in peace. Wallace was, of course, echoing what Woody Guthrie had been saying, albeit more trenchantly, from the moment Truman took office. As the eponymous song said, FDR's death signalled another man's Dungal. His successor lacked the dignity of someone whose disability had brought with it a keener sense of empathy towards those less fortunate than himself. Maybe if I hadn't have seen so much hard feelings, I might not could have felt other people's, in Guthrie's words. To FDR, an elegiac poem from the summer of 1947, found Guthrie recalling the president's fireside chats. The distant voice on the wireless was that of a family man. In some strange way, that same man's fecundity and his zest for competition paralleled Woody's fiddle-playing Blacksmith Uncle John I say you are my uncle John's Anvil and Phil are Two things I could go on And listen to for 20 more elections Was this the same writer who Back in the winter of 1940-1941 Had seen FDR as nothing better than the warmongering tool Of the capitalist elite? The notion of a wealthy New Yorker like Roosevelt Bearing comparison with a hammer-wielding son of the Dust Bowl was perhaps best confined to Guthrie's crowded notebook. More enduring, of course, is Dear Mrs Roosevelt, a song which, if its lyrics are to be believed, was a speedy response to the president's death in April 1945. In actual fact, the song was written on the 18th of January 1948 three weeks after Wallace had crossed the Rubicon and agreed to run against Truman. And almost 20 years to the day in advance of Dylan and the Crackers performing it at Guthrie's Benefit concerts. The date of the composition was discovered by Jorge Arevalo Mateus, the Brooklyn ethnomusicologist who first took on the task of archiving Woody Guthrie's voluminous pictures and writings and who won a Grammy in 2008 for producing Live Wire, the enhanced recording of a 1949 New Jersey concert at which dear Mrs Roosevelt was conspicuously absent.